0: Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for October 2nd through 8th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our future interview with Professor Wayne Viney about the impact of William James's classic textbook, The Principles of Psychology. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. For October 2nd, in 1836, Darwin returned to England on the Beagle, after a five-year voyage around the world. For October 3rd, in 1962, Stanley Schachter and Jerome Singer's classic article, Cognitive, Social and Physiological Determinants of Emotional State, was published in Psychological Review. And also for October 3rd, in 1967, Frederick Wiseman's film, Titticut Follies, was released. The film depicted outrageously poor conditions at the Bridgewater State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Massachusetts. Critics said that Wiseman exaggerated the impression of poor treatment and violated the privacy of patients. For October 4th, in 1893, Edmund Clark Sanford's Course in Experimental Psychology was published. The text was one of the first laboratory manuals in American psychology. And also on October 4th, in 1937, Joseph B. Rhine's book on parapsychology, called New Frontiers of the Mind, The Story of the Duke Experiments, was first published. For October 6th, In 1818, the Charlestown branch of the Massachusetts General Hospital, later named the McLean Asylum for the Insane, admitted its first patient, a young man believed by his father to be possessed by the devil. The McLean, which was close to Harvard, also later established one of the first American laboratories for experimental psychology. For October 7th, in 1833, French physician Joseph Honoré-Simon Beau began his study of the relation between meteorological events and epileptic seizures. He concluded that epilepsy was unrelated to the weather. And for October 8, in 1953, the first volume of Ernest Jones's book, The Life and Work of Sigmund Freud, was published. Jones' three-volume biography is a classic account of Freud's life. And finally, an event that is special within the discipline of the history of psychology, on October 5th, 1968, the organizational meeting of CHIRON, the International Society for the History of the Behavioral and Social Sciences, was held in New York. October 3rd, 1890, saw the publication of the second and final volume of William James's now classic textbook, The Principles of Psychology. It also marked James's emergence as the preeminent promoter of the new scientific approach to psychology in America. Psychology was, however, just a step for James along a path that ultimately led to his becoming the leading philosopher in the nation and the primary spokesperson for America's most influential philosophical product, pragmatism. Prior to his arrival at psychology, James had received formal training in chemistry, painting, zoology, and medicine, and he was first hired by Harvard as an instructor in physiology. On the line to talk to us today about James's fascinating career, and the textbook that made him famous among generations of psychologists, is Professor Wayne Viney of Colorado State University at Fort Collins. Professor Viney is probably best known for his textbook, The History of Psychology, Ideas, and Context, co-authored by Brett King. He is also the author of several journal articles and book chapters about William James. Professor Viney... Although we think of William James as being the consummate American psychologist and philosopher of his era, it was not always clear that his life would unfold that way. He was trained first as an artist and later as a physician and physiologist. Could you please tell us a little about James' upbringing and the considerations that eventually brought him to psychology and philosophy?
1: Well, we have to remember that William James came from very privileged circumstances. His father, Henry James, had inherited a very sizable fortune from his father, who was an astute businessman. Though Henry was very wealthy, he had been dissatisfied with what he considered the overly practical, restrictive, and even stifling intellectual atmosphere in his home. As a consequence, he saw to it that his children were exposed to the broadest possible intellectual agenda. Henry and his wife, Mary Robertson Walsh, had five children. And the first of these five was our William James. The second, named after his father, was Henry, who would later become the famous novelist. And the James children were educated in numerous private schools, including schools in New York City, Paris, London, and Bonn, to name a few. But the children were exposed to numerous languages and cultures. In addition, the home itself was just extremely stimulated as hen- uh, stimulating, as Henry and Mary continually encouraged the children to think about important contemporary religious and philosophical issues. William James's father wrote numerous books and scholarly articles. Most of these dealt with religious and philosophical issues. So William James was also gifted intellectually, and he grew up then with this very cosmopolitan perspective. In college, he had difficulty focusing in on any one major area of interest. His chemistry professor was frustrated because James didn't like canned laboratory exercises. James always preferred novel experiments. Uh, According to his biographers, James was a restless student, exploring broadly and such fields as art, photography, biology, anatomy, chemistry, natural history. He he did finally settle on medicine and earned a degree in medicine from Harvard in 1869, but he would never be a practicing physician. He felt that much of the medicine of his day was, as he said, humbug. And after earning the M.D., James noted that he was left with a good deal of intellectual hunger and he did not know how to satisfy it. That this pattern that was established early seems to persist throughout his career. He was hired in 1872 by Harvard to teach anatomy and physiology, but even as he accepted the appointment, he was <laughs> regretting that he had not stuck to art. Even as he started his career in anatomy and physiology, he was absorbed in the works of people like Alexander Bain, Wilhelm von, and Herbert Spencer, and other pioneers in mental science. By 1875, he was offering a course in the relations between psychology and physiology. And by 1878, he was working almost exclusively in psychology. Within psychology, he was always foraging in, I think, what were the times, were there novel areas, educational psychology, normal psychology, the psychology of religion, and even paranormal phenomena. His intellectual appetite seemed to, it just seemed to go bounds. So by the 1890s, James was begging to move into philosophy. Mm-hmm. And in the last decade of his life, we know he produced the works that would establish him as really one of the great philosophers. I think maybe he went into psychology and philosophy because psychology was new and this attracted him and later into philosophy because there was this emerging field of pragmatism and He made real contributions there. So he was forever exploring novel things.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, now James wasn't uh, the only thing that was uh, growing up intellectually at this time. Psychology itself was, and and the psychology textbook in particular. Um, What was the state of the psychology textbook in America back in 1878 when James first decided to write the principles?
1: There had been textbooks in English. um, Alexander Bain's book titled... Mental Science, published in 1868, and Thomas Upham's two-volume work titled Mental Philosophy, published in 1869. These books at best, I think, might be considered precursors of the modern psychology textbook. James's Principles might be considered the first uh, modern American comprehensive psychology textbook. The Principles, unlike some of the texts of the day, included a great range of topics. Including many that were in contemporary texts, there were early courses in psychology, but professors must have been frustrated uh, and pressed hard to find adequate texts. I've looked into the history of that here at Colorado State University, and you know, we required a course in psychology in the 1880s, but it was apparently difficult to find good books. The books that were used in the 1880s at our institution were. Noah Porter's Human Intellect and Francis Whalen's Elements of Moral Science and Victor Cousins' Lectures. I love the title, Lectures on the True, the Beautiful, and the Good. Hmm. Uh, In the 1890s, when James's book uh, was published, this was really a welcome edition and we adopted it here.
0: Well, in the end, it took James 12 years to write the thing, a period of time that no publisher would tolerate today. Uh, What do you think took him so long, and and why was his publisher, Henry Holt, willing to see him through to the end?
1: I think we have to remember that 1878 was the year James married Alice Hal Gibbons, and it's the year that he signed the contract, as you say, with Holt. Alice and William were immediately busy establishing a family. As a matter of fact, they had five children from 1878, the date of the signing, with Holt, and 1890, the date the book was published. One of these children, Herman, died in 1885. And in this period, James lost his father, his mother, and a brother. Following the loss of his father, he was distracted by the production and publication of a tribute to the literary contributions of his father. Because of, I think, because of his loyalty to his father. This project had a certain priority and crowded out his work on the principles. Additionally, many of the chapters were really unique for that day. They were not just, I think they were just patterned after the works of others. This was a very original and creative work, and it takes longer to produce such a work. The second part of your question about why Holt might have been patient, I think, well, one, there were few alternatives. There weren't that many psychologists in that day. Also, James was publishing shorter articles in journals and magazines, and these were on some of the topical areas that would later be included in the principles. Some of these articles, particularly one on emotion, attracted a great deal of attention. The publisher could, I think, easily discern that William James was a key player in the new discipline. Maybe it was worth waiting on his book.
0: Well, now, just two years after The Principles was published, James wrote an abridged edition of the text, which is affectionately known as The Jimmy, um, and and both books became uh, very popular in America. They even had something of a following in Europe. What do you think it is about James's text that made them so appealing?
1: Well, uh, most of the works that James wrote are still in print, Uh, some of them actually in separate editions. In effect, we can conclude that he still speaks to us. He still has ideas that are relevant to our contemporary confusions and problems. Furthermore, I think his literary talents were exceptional. He was really a gifted writer, and he could capture his readers with combinations of words and phrases that were unusual and captivating. His wit, his erudition, his warmth and charm come through at every turn. I confess that when I read James. I'm sometimes so captured by the sheer elegance of the prose that I forget to think critically about what the man is saying. And I I think sometimes this happens to other readers. I I think the principles of psychology was also popular, not just, just because of the beauty of the writing, but also it was just a very comprehensive work. And that breadth had appeal. It was a psychology that was both pure and applied. That It enfranchised a great range of topical areas, such as abnormal psychology, religious beliefs, educational practices. James was also deeply influenced by Darwin and placed very strong emphasis on roles of habit and affect, uh, the self, individual differences. This was just a robust psychology. I think he's also popular because he speaks to us in such intimate ways. One can hardly read James without being drawn deeply into his world of ideas. He's often quick to tell us where he stands. For example, in a discussion on the nature of truth, he confesses that he thinks we have neglected the role of affect, and he thinks we human beings sometimes assess truths in terms of the way we feel about things. In other words, for him, cognitions are sometimes parasitic, on affect it is not always the other way around. Readers get drawn in as participants on important questions and it's almost as if you feel invited to think your own personal position through on philosophical and psychological issues.
0: Although James went on to become effectively the Dean of America's uh, scientifically oriented psychologists and was the first individual in history to be elected to the presidency of the American Psychological Association twice. He hardly conducted an experiment in his life. What do you think made him popular among scientists?
1: I think psychology, as in other sciences, there are two paths to fame. One is the conduct of a a breakthrough study or series of studies. Uh, The other is a To construct a workable model or to set forth some really compelling theoretical or conceptual work. There's an interesting cartoon I ran across once that had two pictures. One picture shows scientists working in a sophisticated laboratory with test tubes and centrifuges and the like, and the other shows a single scientist working at a blackboard with chalk. The caption under the first picture says low science, and the caption in the second picture says high science. (laughs) Many scientists, whether they be physicists or psychologists, are known for their conceptual work. I would John B. Watson, the founder of American Behaviorism, Oxford Heimer, the founder of Gestalt Psychology, and William James, the precursor of American Functionalism, among those who have achieved fame largely because of their conceptual work. And that's a legitimate path to fame in science.
0: Finally, what do you think James's legacy is for us today? What do you think psychology students can today still learn from his approach to psychology?
1: Well, his legacy is certainly illustrated in the, continue easy, in the continuing easy availability of all his books. Recently there was the founding of the William James Society, the continuing outpouring of biographical studies, and the publication of books such as Margaret Donnelly's edited book with the title Remembering the Legacy of William James. I think the reason for his continuing popularity, particularly in America, is attributable partly to his pluralistic perspective. He once declared that nothing includes everything. We've all encountered people who believe they have the one thing that explains or includes everything. James was suspicious of such big claims, whether they surface in the political, uh, the religious, or the scientific arenas. Pluralism, for him, meant that there is genuine independence. To be sure, the world hangs together, but it hangs together in different ways. There are, I guess, temporary connections and loose connections and provisional connections and genuine disconnections. James believed there is forever another way to see things, a new fresh perspective, another angle. For this reason, there's a strong strand, I think, of individualism in his philosophy, Individuals come with new perspectives. For him, sometimes the view of an individual maybe had more meaning than the meanings we encounter in statistical abstractions that characterize so much of our research. In his system, there's always room for biography, the individual case study. I think at some level we all resonate to that idea that individuals should not be neglected. But you ask what students today can learn from James's approach to psychology, and that's a complicated, complicated question, but let me give it a try. For one thing, after reading James, students will come away, I think, with a fresh perspective on the meaning of empiricism. What is an empirical psychology? For James, a truly empirical psychology is a psychology, I think, that begins with experience. If something is experienced, he says, we have no business leaving it out of psychology. Let me go out on a limb and speculate for a minute to illustrate the point. I think William James would be hesitant to admit that classical behaviorism was an empirical psychology. Why do I say that? First, because classical behaviorism denied the legitimacy of consciousness and experience as scientific content areas. For James, empiricism is a synonym for experience, the very stuff of experience. How can you be empirical if you deny the legitimacy of experience as a topical area? Further behaviorism was quick to tell us what to count and what not to count, what to regard as primary or what to regard as merely secondary. Behaviorism left too much out of the picture and violated so many things that we encounter in experience and that common sense takes for granted. So James's empirical psychology was much more robust and inclusive in I think that's something that can cause students to think about you know, what is an empirical psychology. They might also learn from James that experience is much more than a parade of simple, discreet, noun-like frozen bits and pieces. James once said the word or names a genuine reality. Experience is all about conjunctions, processes, transitions, disjunctions, and movements in time and space he for example asks in the principles what is it that we hear when we hear a clap of thunder for him thunder is just not a not just a discrete isolated event what we hear he says is thunder breaking in upon silence and contrasting with it transitions in life stand out uh, much more even sometimes than discrete events James also loved strange words, like he loved the word with. How are we with our world? How are we with our friends, Mm -hmm. our intellectual work, our studies, our parents? One can be with something in the sense of possessing it, ownership, I suppose, uh, mere indifferent adjacency, advocacy, caring companionship, empathic concern. The list can go on and on. Make a list of all the ways. That one thing can be with another thing. You can quickly construct a list of five or more ways that things are with other things. This is a very Jamesian kind of exercise. In answer to your question, I think maybe students should put all of this to the empirical test. What can we learn from James? Well, read from the principles, his materials, himself, habit, the stream of consciousness, or attention. And see if he doesn't still speak to you in some very relevant ways. And more, maybe pick up a copy of one of his his other books, such as Pragmatism or The Varieties of Religious Experience. And you just may find that you have a very hard time putting the book down. There is still much to learn,
0: I think, from William James. All right. Well, thank you very much for this. We have been speaking to Professor Wayne Viney of Colorado State University at Fort Collins. Uh, Professor Viney is the author of several articles uh, about William James in journals such as American Psychologist in 1989, uh, The Teaching of Psychology in 1991 and 1995, and The History of Psychology in the year 2001. You can find the complete text of The Principles of Psychology on the Classics in the History of Psychology website. Um, you can also find the complete text of the James article, What is Emotion, that Professor Viney mentioned during the interview as well. There is a terrific website called A Walk with William James that is sponsored by Frank Pajeras at Emory uh, University in Atlanta, Georgia. And there is, of course, a huge secondary literature on William James. Uh, One of my favorite biographies about him is by Daniel Bjork. It's called William James, the Center of His Vision. (laughs) And now it's time for birthdays. First, for October 2nd. In 1918, Richard L. Solomon was born. Solomon's research in how the nervous system relates the organism to its environment included fundamental studies of discrimination, word recognition thresholds, and conditioning. October 3rd. In 1893, Clara Thompson was born. Thompson was a progressive figure in American psychoanalysis in the 1940s. She founded a training institute in 1943, that later became the William Allenson White Institute, which she headed until her death in 1958. She investigated the psychology of women, arriving at views that contradicted Freudian theory. Also on October 3rd, in 1942, Lenore Walker was born. Walker's studies of domestic violence as a public health hazard brought attention to the battered woman syndrome and the development of a scientific literature about its characteristics. For October 4th, in 1906, George I. Sanchez was born. Sanchez was a specialist in mental measurements and bilingual education and a critic of culture bias in the intelligence tests of the day. He has been called the founder of Chicano psychology. And for October 5th, in 1713, Denis Diderot was born. Diderot was a French empiricist and promoter of the scientific method. His famous encyclopedia, the first of its kind, one of the great works of the Enlightenment contained an entry on psychology that disseminated the idea among educated people that behavior could be studied scientifically. And for October 6th, in 1853, Johannes von Kries was born. Kreese's work on the physiology of vision led to the correct identification of the functions of the rods and cones of the retina. And also on October 6th, in 1868, Charles Herrick was born. Herrick was a physiologist who studied the structure of the brain and found that the structures of lower animals formed the basis of the human brain. And finally, for October 8th in 1897, George Dinsmore Stoddard was born. Stoddard is known for his contributions to educational administration and leadership. His research focused on intelligence and environmental stimulation. He chaired the committee that restructured the post-war Japanese educational system and consulted with educational programs in Korea, East Africa and Iran. That's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email at us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku, Y-O-R-K-U, ca. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University.